everybody. Thanks for being here. Welcome to Ocean Solutions, a Noise Lab podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be digging into some of the massively important, complicated, and interconnected issues that are facing Earth's ocean and coasts right now. I'm going to be talking with a wide variety of people, researchers, entrepreneurs, activists, public officials, and other members of the community whose lives and careers are deeply connected to the ocean and its coasts. My name is Dr. Morgan Reed Raven, and I'm a biogeochemist and a professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara. I'm part of both the Earth Science Department and the Marine Science Program, and I lead the research group here on campus known as Noise Lab. So this is a science podcast. But this is also a podcast about humans. We live in a time of unprecedented ecological upheaval. And honestly, it can feel like a dark and challenging time to love coral reefs, kelp forests, arctic ecosystems, and marine animals from whales to microbes. So what do we do? How can we create a better understanding of how the ocean works while also looking for practical, meaningful solutions to the enormous challenges we face as a planet and a civilization. So my guests on this podcast are all inspirations to me. They illustrate the incredible diversity of ways to work on ocean-related problems and to make a real impact on human and environmental issues. My first goal is to highlight how science informs and is informed by many spheres of society working together to solve these problems. And my second goal is to reveal just a few of the opportunities that exist to get involved with ocean conservation and climate mitigation, possible majors for students, careers, or other actions that can represent something we and our fellow humans so desperately need, solutions. first guest on this podcast epitomizes the intersection of ocean data science and human rights. Here with me is Gavin McDonald, a project researcher at the Bren School here at the UCSB campus. Hi, Gavin. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited you could join us today. So I've invited you in part to be our very first guest because you are working on an incredibly compelling problem. And it's one that I wasn't really aware of until relatively recently. So could we just start off by having you tell us a little bit about the big issue that you've been working on? Of course, yeah. So a lot of us eat seafood as a regular part of our diet. And many of us also know that seafood is caught all over the world. So many forms of seafood are, are actually global commodities. So if you think of something like tuna, this is caught in basically all of the oceans in the ocean. Um, now, something we think a little bit less about is who's actually catching those fish and what are the conditions like for the workers on board those vessels. Um, now a couple of years ago, maybe about five, six years ago, some really high level reports started coming out about abusive working conditions on some of these fishing vessels. And particularly, there were reports of forced labor on board certain fishing vessels. And this is really a type of, of modern day slavery where essentially fishers are, are brought onto fishing boats and they help these, these vessels fish out on the high seas, but really are, are, are a form of slave. Are they yeah. getting captured at some point and then just not being left off? These so ships? Op 
often what's happening is, is they come onto the ships willingly under certain assumptions about what their working conditions are going to be like and how often they're going to be paid and uh, how often they're going to be able to visit ports and, and come back and see their families. But they're really, they're really uh, tricked. They're, oftentimes they don't understand the language of the vessel they're being brought onto. And so they, they oftentimes just get, get into situations that they, were, that they did not sign up for. Wow. So, I mean, how many people are we talking about here? How widespread is this problem? That's a great question. And uh, so we're, we're actively working on research right now to try to answer that. Uh, previously, there really wasn't a good estimate of how many people, how many boats we're, t- we're talking about. But we're, we're currently doing some research where we're actually trying to quantify the extent of the problem for the first time. Our results are still preliminary, but I will say we're talking about thousands of vessels, at least, um, with tens of thousands of potential uh, victims of forced labor working on those vessels. Tens of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. That just right. seems huge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, surprising, a surprising finding, but, but the more you read about it, the more you hear that it's a very pervasive problem. Wow. So you said that this kind of got some attention for the first time, or at least more attention, maybe five or six years ago. Is that mm-hmm. because this is a relatively new issue or just because we're seeing it for the first time? I think it's, it's a combination of both. I think there was some really, really good investigative journalism that really brought the issue to the public attention. A lot of work by Ian Urbina of the New York Times and the Associated Press, they actually won a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of the issue. So I think there was some fantastic investigative journalism that, that started bringing this to the forefront of the public attention. And I think you know, following those reports, a number of NGOs have also started getting involved in the problem and have also started releasing their own reports. And so I think more and more people are becoming aware of this problem. And it's the kind of thing where once you're aware of it, you almost have to to find out more. Uh, You you kind of feel obliged to to try to shed a light on it. So more and more people are are shedding a light on the problem from different angles. Wow. So are there particular groups of people that tend to end up in this situation enslaved on these ships? Yes, so typically the people that that are ending up enslaved are are marginalized in one way or another. A a big source of these people is often from from migrant communities uh, that are basically refugees from their own countries and seeking uh, work in other places. So for example, might be uh, refugees from Myanmar seeking work in other uh, countries in Asia. And so often these people will, will go to these other countries seeking work, often get involved with a recruitment agency, which connects individuals with uh, places of work. And they'll, they'll get involved in these situations. They don't really know what they're getting involved in. Um, so really, they often don't even speak the local language. So they may be signing paperwork that they, they don't fully understand. And they end up on fishing boats. Um, and often what happens is, is they, these boats leave the port and they may not be back for months, if not years at a time, and really wow. not knowing what's going on. Um, and not really having a way to communicate or, or get off the boat. Wow. And you're in the middle of the ocean. There's no jurisdiction out there. No one's really in charge. And it sounds you're, like you're, you don't have any national government who's really going to go to bat for you. You've been marginalized as you've moved around the world. Your original country was something you had to flee for a reason. Um, you've ended up in another country that doesn't consider you a citizen. And then you end up on a contract on a ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, that sounds terrible. Uh, right. yeah. 
So it seems to me, I might guess that these same ships that are following these horrific labor practices would also be bad actors in other ways, like related to conservation and overfishing. Is this a related issue or are they totally separate? Yeah, that's a great question. So a, a narrative you hear quite often um, is that many fisheries are indeed overfished and it's becoming harder and harder to catch fish. And when it's harder to catch fish, when there's less fish in the water, it's, it's more expensive. You have to travel further distances to find them. It just costs more money to catch the same amount of fish. One way that um, a vessel or a, a company operating a vessel could compensate for this increased cost would be to lower what they're paying their crew or to not pay them at all. And so a common narrative you hear is that in a fishery where it's been experiencing overfishing, it's getting more and more expensive. And a way to, to compensate for those, those costs are, to, are to, to employ forced labor. And so it, it certainly seems like a, a, a plausible narrative. Now, this hasn't been quantified or proven yet, but it certainly seems like there is a link um, between conservation and this practice. I'll also say something else you hear quite often, again, that hasn't been proven, but is certainly something you hear a lot, is that these boats that are employing forced labor, they're doing other things that they shouldn't be doing. Mm. They're, they're often fishing in places they shouldn't be fishing, whether that's in a marine protected area or in another country's waters where they don't have authorization. They're often catching things they're not supposed to catch. Uh, you hear a lot about shark finning happening on some of these boats. And so certainly it's oftentimes it seems like it may be a case of bad actors just doing bad things all around. Got it. But it seems like that could also explain why this would get worse over time is some of these ships maybe wanted to go shark finning from the beginning, but it sounds like maybe there's also a push out of these desirable fishing zones that are sort of, they can no longer follow the practices they did before, and now they're faced with this choice of having to go further and not being able to turn a profit. That's absolutely right, yeah, and I think as, as more of these vessels are using forced labor and they can operate more cheaply, it, it allows them to, to fish more and more, and that could feed negatively back into the whole, um, the whole status of the fishery and the conservation status. Wow. Okay, so how does this actually work? How do, you, how do you take a ship out into the middle of the Pacific and stay there for years and not go to port? How did, you do need food and to get the fish off, right? How does this, how does this yeah. work? Yeah, so essentially there's a practice that's called transshipment. And so what this does is it allows a fishing boat to stay out at sea for basically an indefinite period of time. And so here's how it works. So a fishing boat, typically you might think of a fishing boat as going out to sea, uh, fishing around for a while, and then coming back to port and offloading its catch. That's how many fisheries operate. But an alternative is that rather than coming back to port to offload your catch, you can offload your catch onto another vessel. These are often large refrigerated vessels that can, that can handle fresh fish. And then it's those vessels that go back to port and offload the catch. And wow, so you could really get stuck out there. You could really get stuck out there. And that ship could stay there forever, theoretically. And someone's bringing it diesel and taking away fish. Exactly. And you're just trapped. Exactly, yep. There's, there's certain types of boats bringing fuel and other supplies to the ships. There's other boats... Um, Bring, bring the fish back to port. So it's, it's theoretically possible for a fishing vessel to stay at sea for an indefinite period of time. Wow. So, so what are you going to do about this? What is your approach? Yeah, so when we started thinking about the problem, we were 
wondering if is there a way to to identify vessels that might be at high risk of of doing this activity and we just mentioned some of the behaviors that these boats do things like staying out at sea for long periods of time transshipping with other vessels fishing on the high seas or fishing illegally in another country's waters these are all things that we thought we might actually be able to observe using satellites cool and so our approach was to use uh, satellite vessel monitoring data to try to identify vessels that look like they might be using forced labor, using some of these very same behaviors that we were just talking about. Fascinating. So wait, how do you actually see the ships? Are you looking at them visually or what? Good question, yeah. So many large scale vessels, both fishing vessels and otherwise, carry what's called the Automatic Identification System, AIS. This is a system, it's basically a vessel monitoring system that traditionally um, is used for safety at sea. It's a way of boats to avoid colliding with each other, essentially. But what's really neat is satellites can pick up the signals of these AIS devices and, and basically say where all these vessels are operating at any given time, basically in near real time. So we've teamed up with an organization called Global Fishing Watch that takes all this satellite data, all this vessel monitoring data, runs some really, really cool processing on it, and can actually tell you which of these boats is a fishing boat, and can even tell you when they're actually fishing. And so by having this level of information, we can actually start to look at some of these behaviors we were just talking about by using this vessel monitoring uh, information. That's really interesting. So. Okay, so let's say you identify some ships and you're like, there's no way these guys are following the rules. They've been sitting out here in this protected zone for a long time. We see transshipment occurring. Then what? What is the next step to actually enforce some of these labor laws or practices? What can we do about it? Yeah, so this is really where uh, it takes partnerships to, to make the best use of this information. So one natural avenue for how this information could be used would be to team up with an enforcement agency that is tasked to enforce some particular policy or law. Now, there are international policies uh, regarding forced labor. Uh, it is an international crime, and, and it, it is something that, that different countries can respond to. And so one uh, potential avenue is to team up with enforcement agencies and give them information on which vessels are high risk. Um, now, this can be really valuable because it's costly for enforcement agencies to do inspections of vessels, and often they don't even know which vessels they should be targeting. And so one um, potential avenue for this information is to help them do more targeted interventions, help them uh, be more efficient in how they allocate their resources. Yeah, absolutely. One note, though, these ships that aren't following the rules on conservation and they're not following the rules on labor practices, they still have these beacons. Why do they do that? That's a good question. That is something we don't really know. They still have these beacons. You can see them oftentimes fishing in places they're definitely not supposed to fish. Yeah, we haven't quite figured that one out. <laughs> I suppose no one wants to run into another ship in the middle of the night. That's that definitely is also a, true. <laughs> a near term problem for everybody. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting though, wow. Okay, so you guys are about to publish a paper on this research, right? Mm -hmm. And so what exactly, what exactly is in that paper? What would you like people to take away as the big message of that publication? 
Yeah, I, I guess so. One of the first things we're, we're doing with the paper is really um, shedding a light on the extent of the problem. I think with all the reports coming out, I think we all have an intuitive sense that it's a big problem, but we really didn't know how big. Where are these vessels fishing? Which fleets are they in? Which fishing flags are they using? Um, what ports are they using? This is all information we really didn't have before. And now for the first time, we really have a sense of the extent of the problem. So I think that's, that's one thing. Is this really localized in one part of the world or is this ha something that's happening everywhere? That's a great question. So a lot of the reports that have come out, a lot of the publicly available information is focused in, in Asia. That is a lot of what, what we're reading about. But through our analysis, we found that it's, it's certainly not limited to Asia. We see these boats not only fishing in oceans throughout the world, but they're actually visiting ports in countries throughout the world. And so this is not a problem that's, that's in any one place. It really is a global problem. And does that mean that there is an opportunity maybe when ships that are flagged as potentially bad actors try to come into a port where there is maybe more direct or active enforcement of these things? Would that be an opportunity to intercept some of these ships? That absolutely would be, yeah. And there's a really important international policy called the Port State Measures Agreement that this sort of information could tap into, where certain ports, certain countries uh, have the authority to board vessels that, that may be conducting illegal activities. And so that certainly could be an opportunity to inspect some of these vessels and, and ho hopefully combat the problem. So this really sounds like a lot of a team effort. You've mentioned Global Fishing Watch, right? You've mentioned these enforcement agencies. Is there anybody else who's been working on this problem historically that you'd like to mention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a, a whole group of organizations that, that have been tackling this problem from different um, angles. So one of the groups we teamed up with is a group called Liberty Shared, and they work on all sorts of issues relating to conservation and human trafficking. So not just fisheries, but also wildlife trafficking as well. And so one of their approaches is to really get information about cases of human trafficking and share that with corporations and with banks who are actually obliged to act on information they receive. And so that's, that's one angle that they've been taking is to actually work with banks and corporations to really get this information to them so they can actually take actions against, for example, people that might be taking loans from them. Yeah, that seems really important. Yeah. Um, from the consumer perspective, are there actions that you see happening on the grassroots level or something that a non-NGO, non-government agency can do to deal with this? Yeah, absolutely. So that's another really interesting angle we haven't talked about at all yet. So one example of this is a group called the Seafood Slavery Risk Tool. And this is actually an initiative put together by the Monterey Bay Aquarium, who also makes a Seafood Watch program, as well as Liberty Shared, who I just mentioned, and the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. It's a similar idea to the Seafood Watch program that gives particular seafood products kind of green, red, yellow label. Should I buy this or should I not buy this if I see it in the store? So they're trying to do something similar except with slavery. And so they're working to help identify which specific seafood products may or may not be uh, subject to this kind of human rights abuse. So are they envisioning maybe a a sticker or a badge that you could see on your seafood and you'd be like, great, I have dolphin safe and slavery free tuna products. 
I think we could certainly envision something like that in the future. And I think that's really where some of uh, this will eventually end up in the hands of the consumers. You know, we have a choice when we buy seafood at the market of what we buy. And if we have that, that sort of information when we're buying seafood, we might make a different choice. And if we all collectively decide to stop buying seafood products that are made in this way, um, we can really make a difference. That's really exciting. That approach, right, consumer-focused solutions, that's bigger than just this project, right? That's a general theme of the research group at Bren, the group that you're in. Yeah, so I work at the Environmental Market Solutions Lab, which is at the Bryn School of Environmental Science and Management uh, here at UCSB. And that's exactly right. So we think all about how market-based solutions can help solve some of the most pressing environmental challenges. We just talked about one here, but another one is like Seafood Watch. So that's more on the sustainability side of things. So that is a way of getting information into the hands of consumers so that they can exert their own kind of market control in the situation. And so market-based solutions are all about aligning incentives. And if uh, we get information into the hands of consumers and they change their buying preferences, this can really um, exert influence on how fish are caught, whether they're caught sustainably, whether they're caught with or without human rights abuses on board. And so our group is all about finding these sort of solutions where incentives can be aligned. Fantastic. Very cool. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit about what your role is in the group and what your job is and what your normal days are like. So would you consider yourself an environmental data scientist? Is that the words you would use or is there a better phrase? Yeah, I think that's a, a great word for it. I mean, so really my, my day-to-day job is often in front of a computer and really it's all about taking data, which we have a massive amount of these days, especially with, with satellites now, and making sense of it and helping use those data to help uh, inform uh, better management. And uh, a lot of the focus of my work is on fisheries management, but it's, it's not, not limited to that. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say it's incredibly powerful what we can do nowadays in terms of taking data and making more informed decisions with those data. Are you mostly looking at the data directly or are you mostly like coding algorithms that parse the data and give you larger trends? It's a little bit of both. Uh, nowadays with satellite data, it's almost impossible to look at all of the data directly. Hmm. Um, I mean, we're talking about you know, millions and millions of data points. There's no way one person could wrap their head around all of them. So a lot of what we do is, is yeah, exactly what you say, is write code and computer algorithms that can basically parse all of this massive amount of data and make it into simple trends that we can comprehend with our, with our minds. Got it. I like simple trends that I can comprehend with my mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my favorite trends. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so most of your time, it sounds like, is spent in front of the computer. Clearly, you do some writing because you have mm-hmm. these papers coming out as well, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Do you get to do a lot of outreach or talking with outside groups as well as part of your day? Yeah, I'd say that's the other major component for really, I'd say, tackling any environmental problem, it requires partnerships, it requires an interdisciplinary approach. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, myself as an environmental data scientist, I can look at the data and look at some trends on my computer, but it really needs eyes of another person, a person that's really familiar with the problem to help make sense of what those trends mean. And this is where our partnerships with other groups like Liberty Shared really come into play. We need to talk with people 
that really are familiar with these um, issues intimately so they can help us make sense of the data. Yeah. So what is your background, actually? How did you get into this? Yeah, so I actually started my career as a mechanical engineer in uh, high school and, and before I was always really, really interested in math and science. And at the time, I, I didn't even know about environmental science as a potential career avenue. Um, so engineering seemed like a very natural fit for me, for, for someone that liked math and science. And so I went into that and I did enjoy it. It was very, very interesting. And actually, my first job was working as a research engineer at a satellite company. So it was a company that was actually designing the thrusters of satellites that moved them around in space. Cool. And yeah, it was a really, really neat job. So I got to play around with satellites. But I, but I decided that didn't feel like quite enough for me. It was, I think, stimulating and fun, but I really wanted to do something more. I really uh, have always had a passion for the environment. And it was around this time that I started thinking, wow, maybe I could combine my love of math and science with actually helping the environment. And use and satellites along the way. And use satellites along the way. Um, so I actually left that job and came to the Brin School and did a master's degree of environmental science and management uh, here at UCSB. Uh, and now I'm on the flip side of those satellites and actually get to use some of the data that they're collecting uh, to help solve environmental problems. And such an important issue to be working on. It really connects all of these pieces, the engineering, the science, the data mm -hmm. algorithms, and these huge human issues. That's mm -hmm. really fascinating. So what does happen next? What is the future plan for this research? Yeah, so we're, we're looking at a number of different avenues of, of where we go next with this. Um, so like I mentioned before, one potential avenue is teaming up with enforcement agencies. And so we actually have some of these in the works that might actually be able to use our, our information to do more targeted um, uh, inspections. We also hope to team up with some potentially some foreign governments um, that might actually be able to do some inspection in their, in their ports. And so I think really, really what we do now is we've, we've done this proof of concept. We've shown that satellites can, can identify vessels that are high risk of forced labor. And really where we're going now is let's get that information to the hands of the people that can use it most. Um, let's get them out there and, and make their jobs easier. And I think really along the way, let's also make our proof of concept better. As these enforcement agencies and countries are doing inspections, um, maybe sometimes we're gonna get it right and maybe sometimes we're not. And what we're, we hope to do is feed all of that information back into our algorithms to hopefully make them better and better over time. Yeah. For example, you had to know about transshipment in order to be able to know to even look for that in your data sets. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and I'd say, you know, one of the challenging things with, with monitoring criminal behavior like this is criminals are, are adaptive. They change <laughs> right. over time. And we've shown they do a certain thing up till now, but they may do something different a year or five years from now. And we want to be able to stay up to date with those trends. And the only way to do that is to work with these groups that are seeing things on the water um, and constantly update and improve things over time. Yeah. Okay. If somebody is listening to this right now and they're thinking, that is so cool. I want to do that. I could do that. I would love to contribute on an issue like this. And I would love to work with satellite data and try to parse it into a useful format for human needs. What would you say to that person? What advice would you like to give them? Yeah. I mean, I would say there's, you know, if this is an issue you, you care about and you want to get involved with, there's different avenues of doing that. 
So you could take a path like myself as an environmental data scientist and really look at this from the data side of things. And so for that type of individual, I certainly recommend, you know, focus on your math and science. If you have opportunities to take data science classes, which really wasn't a thing when I was going to school, take advantage of that. That'll be directly applicable to this line of work. So if you find yourself gravitating towards math and science, you know, data science is a great way to get into this. Um, but if that's maybe not, not your thing, there's also opportunities for, for policy-oriented folks. You know, this is a, an issue that's ultimately going to take domestic and international policy to really solve. And so if maybe the data science side of things is in your interest, policy work is certainly needed as well. Well, and it sounds like no matter which side you were to take a data science or a policy approach, knowing about the other side, you're a policymaker to be aware that these tools exist, that you can get some actual data about how prevalent these problems are, maybe even some tools to target your resources would be a really important thing to know about. And Absolutely. vice versa, clearly you can't implement your solutions without help on the policy side. That, that's absolutely right. I think it, it takes us all to work together on something like this. Great. Well, thank you so much, Gavin, for being here. Yeah. This was really fascinating to learn about. Um, and I, for one, have really expanded my perspective about what goes into this seafood. And I would love to see some sort of rating system that would let me know that this wasn't in my cat food. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> so I really hope that that becomes a thing in the near future. And yeah, thank you for all your of your work out. on it. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and thank you for, for doing this podcast. This has been super fun, yeah. What has been fun. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and expertise this morning, Gavin. You're welcome. Thank you all so much for listening. I want to make sure I give special thanks to Eleanor Duran for all of her help in pulling this together, and also to Dust on the Radio for our theme song, One Way Trip to Mars. Next week, we're going to be talking about solving ocean problems with Isabel Houghton, who has a startup company who, get this, is building teeny tiny robotic sensors and drone submarines that tell us all sorts of important things about waves. See you then.